Hello, and welcome to Ryan and Brian's Bible Bistro, a podcast all about the Bible, theology, and all things related to the Christian faith. I'm the Ryan half of Ryan and Brian, and this is episode number 29. This week, Brian and I are talking all about Bible translations. If you're like me, you've read several different translations in your life, and they all say things a little bit differently, which sometimes, honestly, can be confusing. Brian tells us about the two different styles of translations and the strengths and weaknesses of both. We also talk about how reading different Bible translations, even if you don't know Greek, can give us some hints about what's going on with the Greek underneath the translations. It's a longer episode, but it sheds some light on the Bible translations and issues that some people might have with them. Just as a quick reminder, if you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe and share with your friends. And if you're enjoying the video version of the podcast on YouTube, please don't forget to smash that subscribe button there. I think that's what they say on YouTube is smash the subscribe button. Anyway, all right, let's jump into this episode looking a bit at Bible translations. All right, Brian. Well, welcome back to the Bistro. Hey, how are you doing, Ryan? I'm good. good. You doing good? I'm doing well. Had had a good breakfast with you this morning, you know? Yes, it was delicious. Of yeah. course, as always, too much was consumed. <laughs> well, I don't know about always. Well, not it just, well, it, we, we go out for breakfast. It was a carb heavy. It was. Mm-hmm. Biscuits and gravy, three eggs, bacon, red potatoes. Now we have some delicious vanilla and hazelnut coffee. It is. Only the finest for you, Brian. Right. That. We had had a little trouble with the wait staff today, but uh, <laughs> he's referring to my wife for all you listeners out there. So I'll make sure to pass the message on. Whoops, maybe we should get that. Well, we were getting ready to start, and we'd asked her, like, oh, did you feel coffees? Because we'd gotten in position for the right. video. And she's like, all right, you ready to record? And we both held up our coffee cups, like, <laughs> simultaneously. Uh, I don't, I think you know the answer to this. Like, you know, we're not ready. So we're, I'm glad you're back. We're, yeah, we're back here in Indianapolis. Yes, you're back Greenwood. here. Greenwood. Greenwood. Yeah, you're on a concert tour right now. Yeah, I went and saw Hollow Notes last week. Yes, I'm going to say see Jason Isbell tonight. And you had your skinny jeans and uh, leather jacket. <laughs> no, on, right? I did not. I did not. Uh, although Daryl Hall did, and I have to say, for 74, you know, he still looks pretty good. I think he gets a little help with his blonde hair, but uh, you know. <laughs> Yes, but good. Well, we're glad you're back. We're yeah. glad to be back here in the bistro. Yeah. So, what do you always want to good talk? to be in the bistro? It is always good to be in the bistro, and we're glad that our listeners are joining us in right. the bistro. Right. And again, you know, we're back in the video. So, if you're if you're listening right now and you'd like to, if you'd like to view us, <laughs> you can go to YouTube. <laughs> you're like, what? What are they doing when they when they do this? <laughs> you so know, looking great. That's what we're doing when we do this. <laughs> All right, so what do you want to talk about today? I thought we'd pick up on something we talked about pretty early, actually. We, the first couple of episodes of this podcast that we released, goodness, what, back in April now, something like that? We released in April. We started yeah. recording this back in January. Yeah, Oof. yeah, it was long, early yeah. this year. We recorded those on the Bible, and one of the things we talked about a little bit, and we've talked about this a couple of times, are the different translations of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And I think you'd said at some point it'd be good for us to kind of talk about you know what are good quote unquote good translations and what's going on with right. that? Right, because I was I was using a different one. The yeah. I, I use I have several. I was yeah. using the Christian Standard Bible, and you weren't right. familiar with that. But then there's ESV, ESV NIV, right. like right. all right. Yeah, and and you know I get I, there's a couple questions I always get, and one of them I don't like at all. I, get, I always get this question: What's the best translation? And mm. and I always say you can't say there's a best translation. What you really have to do is kind of understand the nature of the translation you're using. And I'll say to you, you'll say sometimes say, "Oh, I'm reading from the ESV. Is this okay?" And I'm like, "Yeah, it doesn't doesn't bother me." You know, 
but kind of understanding a little bit about them and the differences I think might be good. It can be confusing. You know, the, when, yes. when somebody goes to choose a Bible or to think about a translation, you know, I'll just be honest in English, we just have a ton of choices. Uh, you know, commercially, there's probably 40 some that you could get pretty easily in a bookstore or oh, you know, yeah. wherever. And the thin line. Well, study Bible. Yeah, not just that, but, but those are additions. Yeah, yeah, those are additions as well. And, 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 you know, that's the other funny thing. I, was all, I think it'd be good to talk a little bit. When we talk about a version, when you use that word version, you're talking about a translation. In right. other words, it is a particular translation of the words. And then uh, when we talk about an edition, so you might have the NIV translation, which would be mm-hmm. a version, but then you might have the, the, the NIV student Bible or the mm-hmm. NIV study Bible or the devotional Bible. And all those are, I would call those different editions of that so, or in the, in the 2008 NIV or 2004? Well, t- yeah, the two, 2011 is when they updated it. Right. And, and we'll talk a little bit about that, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Well, I went through a, I went through a student NIV. I remember I remember yeah. this had this black student NIV. Yeah, that would have been the 84 And then edition. I went to uh, Bible College and it was NASB. Right. Then it went to ESV. Right. And now I'm on the CSB. So, yes, I've, I've gone through yeah. different translations. Yeah. Well, let, let's talk about a little bit about why we even have this. And we've, we talked about this a bit early on, and I think the third episode, uh, we talked about the Bible some. And we understand, most of us, I think, understand that the Bible was not written in English, right? Mm-hmm. It was written in in the, the languages of the, of the time. So mm-hmm. for the Old Testament, that's primarily the language of Hebrew. Right. And uh, Hebrew, there's some Aramaic in the book of Daniel, for example, some of the later books. There's, there's some sections that are written in Aramaic. And I'll go ahead and say Aramaic and Hebrew, when we write them today, use a very similar, um, well, it's the same alphabet, basically. Uh, and, and some people call Aramaic a dialect, but most people consider Aramaic a, a separate language from Hebrew. But they're very closely related languages, I'll say. So that's the Old Testament. Then when we get to the pages of the New Testament, those are written almost entirely in Greek, which was the common language of the empire at that time. We talked about, you right. know, remember we talked about the intertestamental period Yep. and Alexander the Great, when he came through and kind of conquered the whole known world at that period of time, Greek became a common language, even though people would still speak their native dialects or their native mm-hmm. languages, like, you know, the Egyptians would speak Egyptian and that kind of thing. They would also speak Greek. And that was kind of the language of commerce or mm-hmm. the language when you're doing trade. And so Greek became a common language. So it makes sense that the NIV or <laughs> the New Testament, I don't know where oh, NIV boy. came from. We got to cut that out, but no, no, but we're not. I know. I know you never cut anything out. You always make me look silly. The, the, <laughs> the oh New Testament, yes. the New Testament, it makes sense. That it was written in Greek because, um, you know, it, it was able to be read and, and understood in various different places. Right. And and again, as we've said before, the the real thrust of the Christian community and the followers of Jesus in the early centuries was to spread the message about Jesus as far as they could. And if, and, they, and if they'd stuck with Aramaic, it, the language would have been the barrier to it the would, spreading It would have been message. pretty much, yeah, for the, for the Jewish community. Then there are a few words in Aramaic, and we think Jesus probably spoke quite a bit of Aramaic. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the words that we have in Aramaic, for the most part, in the New Testament, there's a couple of exceptions, but for the most part, the words in Aramaic we have are out of the mouth of Jesus, you know, when he'll say something. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are a few other words that we find Paul using, um, Abba, for example, which is an Aramaic word for father and those kind of things. And so so these are the original languages. So most of us can't read 
Hebrew and, and Aramaic and Greek. Mm-hmm. And, and so what has to happen is we have to, we rely upon a translation. But mm-hmm. now the, the problem is I was, I was asking just before we came on air, and I think we've talked about this before, any translation is going to have a, a certain amount of, of a problem with it. And, and, and when I say, I guess problem's not exactly the right word, but anytime you, when you under, you understand when you're translating from one language to another, there's always going to be some kind of um, something lost there, I suppose I would say, lost in translation, so to right. speak, where where there's not a, always a direct one-for-one correspondence in language. And, and, you know, I don't know, most of our listeners may have had, in high school, they may have had a foreign language like French or or Spanish. Yep. And you understand- I'm a Spanish. Okay. Even though, the, even though in closely related languages like those, for example, sometimes there's differences just in the way that um, that we say things. It's usually not a one-to-one correspondence. Uh, let me give you a famous uh, Spanish example that you'll you'll probably know. Um, in, in English, we tend to say, if you're introducing yourself, you might say, well, my name is. Mm-hmm. And that's not what you say in Spanish. You say, I, I call myself, me llamo, right? Mm-hmm. So you use a reflexive verb there. Uh, I call myself Ryan or I call myself whatever, you know? Right. Um, so, or, or another example would be, um, uh, how old are you is how we, we say it in, in English, but in Spanish, it's bro. <laughs> how many years? Oh my you- gosh. This is my headed out <laughs> moment where you make me look silly. The exact translation would be something like, how many years do you have, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, like if we were going to do it literally, we, yeah. you know, that, and, and so you get what I'm saying in trans, it, it's just the, the, the idiom is what we call it. The way that the language works um, is different. And so, so translation is, is a difficult uh, concept. There's, there's no such thing as a direct correspondence. You can't. Gotcha. It's not a one-to-one. And, and in fact, some people will use this idea of, they'll say, well, this is a more literal translation, or they'll say it's a word for word translation. I'll tell you, there's no such thing. There's no such thing as a word for word translation. If there is, we call them an interlinear Mm-hmm. Which is where you have you can buy these interlinear New Testaments or Old Testaments. Old Testament's pretty big, but um, basically it gives you a line of of the Greek and then and then the English word right under it. And, and it if you read the English like that, it makes no sense because different languages, even German, you know, all these different languages, even modern languages, structure their sentences and their forms yes. is the word I'm going to use mm-hmm. differently. Now, what you do have then. I would say is kind of a spectrum. You have, if you think on the one hand, you have um, you have translations that that try to follow the form uh, of the language more closely. When I was in college, uh, we used a, a, a translation with one of my professors. He loved the American Standard Version. Okay, now, that's not the Revised Standard Version. It's ASV. That's ASV, which was originally published in 1901, mm-hmm. and it was it was a very close translation to the to the original. So close that it was pretty bad English sometimes. Well, right? I, I have experience with this. So right. I, there was this very popular Kickstarter a couple of years ago uh-huh. called Bibliotheca. Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh, it's this reader Bible, and it's right. these beautiful things. Right. And it came in the ASV version, yeah. and I tried to read it, <laughs> and I was like, it's beautiful. It's beautiful, right. but it's terrible investment. Right. Well, he, <laughs> so I sold it. <laughs> he used it because uh, because it was it, it was it was a close formal co- correspondence. So that's the word I'm going to use there is a formal equivalence. In other words. Mm-hmm. You're trying to match the form, but it's a little bit like sounding like Yoda sometimes, right? <laughs> Star Wars Bible. <laughs> right. So so there's formal equivalence, 
And then there was this really famous translator. Uh, he, he was kind of a missionary and was was really interested in getting the the Bible into as many languages as possible. Uh, Eugene Knight is his name, but he he used he used to use this phrase called the the dynamic equivalence. Was kind of the other thing you'll sometimes hear that today. But the word that he and a phrase he ended up preferring was functional equivalence. So, f- so and, and that makes a lot of sense, right? Formal equivalence means that it's trying to stick close to the form of the language. Functional equivalence means that it's more interested in in how is this functioning. Okay. So let me use the Spanish example again. You know, the, the you know, I don't even know how to say it. The correct translation of you know how many years do you have in in Spanish would be in English. How old are you? Because that's a more idiomatic. It's the same idea, right? right. In Spanish, you're asking, well, how you know how many mm-hmm. years do you have? In English, the equivalent to that functionally is how old are you? Now, you can see when it comes to the Bible, though, that gets us into a little bit of a... Gets tricky. It does. And so that's why I'm saying it's kind of on a, on more of a spectrum. And so there are certain translations today, modern translations I'm gonna is what I'm going to focus on mostly, that lean more toward functional equivalence, and there are others that lean more toward formal equivalence. Now, n- neither one of them are, are 100% that way. Mm, even right. even a formal equivalence translation. You mentioned the New American Standard version, mm-hmm. and and when I was younger, that was always said. Oh, that's the literal translation. Is the yes. word that's used and literal. I'll go ahead and say literal in that in the, in this context doesn't make any sense at all. And we we'll talk about literal literal and figurative another time. But but people, what they, I think they meant is it follows the the language of the Bible more closely. Mm-hmm. The form, right? In, in other words, the point was the form. But I'll tell you, as I began to study Hebrew and Greek, I found places where where it didn't, where mm-hmm. it, it and, and I'll say this, and this is not a bad thing, it's just something we need to be aware of. I always say that translation always involves interpretation. Right. Okay. The difference is going to be the functional equivalence translations, which usually are smoother English. They tend to use more idiomatic English. In other words, they say things the way we would say them rather right. than the way... You might say them as, as a Greek person of the first century or a Jewish mm-hmm. person of the sixth century. Um, the more functional equivalence um, is going to be smoother reading typically. The more formal equivalence and and probably the two that lean that way the most. And again, there's no, it's not a right or wrong or better it, it, or worse. Right. It, it's more of, again, it, and it's it's on a kind of a spectrum. The ones that, that tend more toward the formal equivalence would be the ESV, the New American Standard Version. Uh, and sometimes those are, like I said, not as good, not a smooth English. Mm-hmm. Uh, they require a little bit more thought on our point. So, so that's why a lot of times the ni- dynamic equivalence. Now, <laughs> Everybody was asked, well, why do you use the NIV? And 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 for a long time, it was because that's what most of the people that I taught and and most of the people that I preached to had for themselves. And, and I'll say the more I began to realize that all of these, um, when you begin to think about the language that's behind them, all of them are going to require explanation from time to time. Right. right? All of them requires. It, it, it's like we've we've seen a couple of examples of this in our in our episodes so far. There's some of them we kind of have to look look behind get to the to the original language mm-hmm. and say well here's here's what's going on here um i just thinking about the episode we had with uh, john weatherly mm-hmm. and he pointed out hey even though the word salvation is used several times in scripture it's very different here in these two places it's very different and that points us towards something that's that's meaningful that's not something you're going to get in any translation whether it's a formal equivalence or a functional equivalence right right so i, I tend to use the ones that are smoother language 
And then I, I take the opportunity in my preaching and teaching to say, now here's a place we need to, to watch this, you know, or we need to understand. To watch what's, out what's going on with the language what, here. What's going on with the language, right. Because there's there's layers to it. Right. But I'll tell you, you know, here's the funny thing. You mentioned the 1984 NIV and the 2011, mm-hmm. and there are some things that in the 2011 that were improved, in my in my opinion, Um <laughs> This is this may get a little. This is going to get tricky I for you. Well, I didn't plan to talk about this, but the 1984 tended to use this translation, and 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 here's the where you have to be careful because people begin to use this language in their in their teaching and in their in their thoughts, even the way that they they talked about things. There are several places that there's a word in the in the Greek word sarks, and I would say that the the immediate translation of that are the most most um, I don't want to say this the simplest translation for that would be flesh. Mm-hmm. And often, for example, in Romans chapter eight, there's several places there that Paul is contrasting the spirit, okay, the pneuma, mm-hmm. with the sarks, with the flesh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he will say, for example, uh, the mind of the spirit is is life and peace, but the mind of the flesh. flesh. Now, in the in 1984 version of the NIV, famously, that was quote unquote translated as sinful nature. Interesting. So you had, you know, the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. The mind controlled by the sinful nature, right? It wasn't talking about flesh then. That's a good example, though, of a of a functional equivalence. They, but but here's the problem: it was interpretive, and that's again the problem we have with any translation is going to have a certain amount of interpretation. What I would do, because uh, <laughs> I'm I'm I try to be a little provocative sometimes, is I would say in, in John chapter one. We have that word sarks used, and I would ask students to read that word. Instead of reading it as flesh, uh, I would have them read it as sinful nature, because that's the way it's translated uh, most times in the NIV. Uh, And um, again, I didn't plan to do this, and so... I've got my CSB here, if you want me to read it. Okay. Oh, 14? Yeah. Uh, The word became sinful nature. (laughs) Right, and made and dwelt among, among us. us. So, so that's and even Ain't even wrong, right? Even up here, here a bit a bit higher, uh, it talks about Jesus born according to the flesh. You know, all it means is that he was he was born as a human being, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it it's not that he was born according sinful to the sinful nature. nature. And, and so again, and, and and you know, that's just kind of a again a provocative thing, kind of a, a funny thing to think about. But it shows us that we have to be careful. When, when we're thinking about the meaning of these. And and I tend to go toward less, you know, and you're going to say, well, that's not functional equivalence. And you, you want less interpretive, you know. Right. All, all translation, I don't care how formal equivalence it tries to, to be, is going to have a certain – there are times you have to make decisions about what is really trying to be said here. Mm-hmm. And, and so you're going to choose – usually you guys, again, will know this. If, you're, if you've worked in a foreign language, you understand a lot of times there's more than one choice – of, of a translation that you can you can make, right? I was just thinking about uh, your your wife talking about your son and and uh, the different words of meanings of words. He's very particular <laughs> about the words that are used, right? And so, so you know, most words, and in fact, some people would say for language to work, words have to have more than one meaning. Um, and, and so, you know, when we're working in our, our heart language or our you know what we sometimes call our mother tongue. Mm-hmm. Uh, we tend to 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 kind of make those choices automatically, and, and we understand them. Even if somebody makes a choice different than ours, 
uh, but that's where jokes come from and puns and all that kind of stuff too, right? Right. We, we use, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, time flies like a like an arrow, fruit flies like a banana. The the flies there is used in two different ways, right? And so that that's kind of the nature of a lot of humor. The the foundation of a lot of humor is the use of words in two different ways. So. So anyway, that's formal equivalence versus uh, functional equivalence. You have any questions on that? Uh, no, I don't think I have any questions. I mean, my my main thing that you know, I as I mentioned, I read the CSB, and I think going through that. So again, I've done the NASB, right? And I've done the ESV. Um, I got away from the NASB because I hated reading it. Right. Um, it was. Right. I mean. It was just really hard. And I got the ESV, and it was a little bit better. Right. Um, and then I discovered um, – I'm trying to think how I got onto the CSB. I was looking up, like, Bible translations one time, like, what people were uh, really enjoying. And so I got the CSB, and um, it, it's very much I, – I think it's a functional equivalent, like, how we would speak today. And yeah. so I, I that uh, kind of sparked, like, a – I wanted to read read the Bible sure. again through some of that stuff. And so now I have the CSB and I have the yeah. NIV. And maybe I'll go ahead now and kind of take the – here's what I would say is the takeaway. Most of us, ha- I mentioned this before, have more than one translation available to us, even if it's online. Mm-hmm. Right. Bible Gateway has, I can't remember now, 30-some or 40 translations that are available for free online. Red Letter Bible has uh, half a dozen or eight, maybe 10 Um if you have some Bible study software, usually you have maybe 40 or 50 different translations available to you. And my whole point would be this, is to use a variety of translations. In fact, if you're studying a passage carefully, I would say lay a couple of translations side by side, and not only a couple of translations, but choose a couple that maybe are different. So take one functional equivalent and one formal equivalent and lay them side by side. And where you see differences there is going to point you to think, okay, I may, There's need, some to, language things I may need to study this a little bit differently. We have a video we've put out on the Blue Letter Bible and how mm-hmm. you can use that to kind of find the Greek or the Aramaic or Hebrew that, that's behind our English translations. And so if you lay, let's say you lay an ANASB or ESV against the NIV or the CSV, and you find a difference there that might say, well, let me boot up my my computer and, and you, still, a- you still boot up computers, I guess. <laughs> Yes, the okay. CPU. Yeah, let me t- let me turn on my CPU and and connect via modem. No, I don't know. <laughs> AOL, AOL connection right away. But uh, AOL, I don't. Th- can we say we're that? old? We're gonna get AOL. AOL, does AOL, AOL still exist? <laughs> it actually does. I think it's a technology. Don't, I don't get the CDs anymore though <laughs> in the mail. In fact, in fact, um, well, I can remember when you get the three and a half inch floppy. But oh my anyway, gosh, yes. yeah, we're we're getting off topic. Anyway, now, but, so but, the Blue Letter Bible. If you sign up for email newsletter, you can get that video. Just and, by the way, and that that video will show you how then to to when you see those rough places in language, maybe you'll take take a moment to go go back behind that. So here's another thing. I wasn't I was going to talk about this a little bit later, but well, let's talk about reading level first because that's the other thing you talked about is ease of of reading and different translations will aim at a different reading level. Yeah. And should we say something at this point? Because we, you and I talked mm-hmm. about this a little bit last yeah. night is paraphrase. Yes. Yeah. The paraphrase the thing. And you can talk how about the, that. Yeah. yeah. So we so we talked about the message. And I remember when the message came out, everybody was like, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I mean, there were some certainly interesting things in there, but that's different than a translation. I that, would say so. Well, and, and I will say this, me- the message technically is a translation, but it's a translation done by one person. Eugene mm, Peterson right. is, he translated that and I could trans, you know, I could put out my translation. N.T. Wright's done the same thing more, <laughs> yes, yes. more recently. N.T. Wright translated the entire New, New, New Testament. Testament. And so what you're hearing there is what one person thinks about the Greek text, which 
is not a bad thing, but you need to realize what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and again, Eugene Peterson, he sometimes used some language that brought a new nuance. He's a preacher, right? Yes. It was, was a preacher, passed away a couple of years ago. But um, he, so he brings some, I want to say this, some elements of communicating in a powerful way, I think, that he, mm-hmm. that he did a good job with there. With there. Most of your translations are going to be a committee, though. So right. uh, NIV, for example, you're going to have a committee, maybe 40 or 50 different people who who are – there's going to be translations done, and then they're kind of submitted to the committee, and it's kicked around, and there's decisions made about using this word or that word and, and this mm. phrase or that phrase. So it's a very long process. It is. And and what you tend to think then is that because there were more people at work here, there's less less opportunity for a strong bias to come in. Mm-hmm. Now again, that's not to say that those committees are not chosen in a Out particular a way. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so so those kind of things. And I even remember I had a professor, the original NIV and the eighty four NIV um, was translated and and one of my professors from college was uh, on the translation committee. And I remember him even talking he would teach us uh, and uh, sometimes he would talk about the conversation behind the scenes in the translation oh, wow. yeah. when we got to a particular verse and and kind of the the way the decision was made, you know. Mm-hmm. And and when you get to think about that again, so here's my whole point with that. These translations are not what we're considering to be inerrant. They're not what we're considering to be, you know, what God revealed. He revealed these in Greek and Hebrew. Now, that does not mean to say that they aren't then you know, trustworthy. Right. What I think we need to do again is take advantage of the fact that in English we have all of these available to us. Of course, there's languages in the world that there isn't even a translation of the Bible available. Mm-hmm. I have some uh, friends and some former students who are working on translating into some of these languages. There's no Bible available, for example. But, but the other thing is there's there are some languages where they might only have one translation or or maybe just a right. few translations, uh, and we've kind of got an embarrassment of riches. Right. It allows us then, even if we don't know Greek or Hebrew, to lay those side by side and kind of use some comparison. So now paraphrase the other one that was kind of popular uh, several years ago. This back when the King James used to still be the primary text that was used. Yes, and we may talk. Talk about this. There are some churches that still use King James by as a only. matter of yeah theological decision that they said that this is the only English translation. Um, if I think about it, I, maybe I'll tell this another time. But I had an interesting conversation with a guy that used to be my neighbor when I was preaching at this church down in Kentucky, and he belonged to a King James only church. And I think they eventually said, "Quit going around to that guy's house because he's a bad influence." But, but anyway, oh my god! If I think about it, we'll talk about that conversation. But when the King James was still pretty popular, there was a paraphrase called uh, the 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 live. Um, uh, what am I looking for? Living translation, living trans or living word, I think was what it was called. But it okay. was a, it was a paraphrase where he simply took the English King James version and put it into modern language, okay. and that's a that's a paraphrase. So again, the problem with that is you're looking at one person's kind of decisions, and mm-hmm. and you're going to get their their bias. Um, there's some other things like that, and and so that's what I would look at. And and most people don't do this, but I always tell students when when you first get your Bible, read the introduction. There's lots of information in there, even even about some things. Uh, I'll give you an example. If you're still a King James or a New King James Version reader, and, and this is true in the New American Standard Version as well, one of the things that they do, sometimes it, when we do translation in language, 
it is necessary for us in the receptor language, like in our case, it's English, mm-hmm. to add a word that's not in the in the original text, like a it, binder word. Yeah, it might be a binder word, or it might be one where the pronoun's not necessarily necessary in the original language, but in our receptor language, it is to to for clear for the sake of clarity. Or mm-hmm. you know, there's lots of different things, but what they do in in some of those translations is they italicize those. Mm, okay. To indicate that those are not in the original these, text. These are inserted here's the funny words. Thing, if you didn't read your introduction, you might think, well, this is an emphasis, <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> There's no emphasis in Greek or Hebrew. <laughs> right. And so so anyway, that's that's read your introduction and it'll tell you a lot about the committee. It'll have the names of the committee members there that you can look up. Or sometimes these days that you can look them up online. They'll have a, a link and you can look up the the information. But it'll, and, yeah. it'll tell you some inf- interesting things about how the, the process was done. Yeah. And and make sure, you know, there are a lot of translations and not all of them. We listen to one that's <laughs> Right. About one that's like an individual that did his own translation yeah. and it was something not good. And that's, again, what I would say is usually usually you're going to want a translation that's done by a committee. If you use a translation done by an individual, recognize it for what it is. It's one person's mm-hmm. opinion, I would say, or one person's bias that's going to come across. Reading level, as mentioned, you mentioned the ESV was a little bit easier for you to read. And that's partly because they they intentionally chose to use shorter words uh, – I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. <laughs> they use small words for you, Ryan, and it made well, sense. No, I, I I was at the meeting when they introduced that. I was at a, at a, a Bible conference. <laughs> I was at one of my former bosses used to call it Bible nerd conference. You know where all yes. the Bible nerds got together. But I, when they released the um, ESV. Uh, the ESV, they talked about intentionally choosing uh, instead of more Latinized words, they tended to choose more. From the old English and and from the uh, Anglo-Saxon, mm-hmm. I mean, you think I'm kidding? But it's I, those, I, I don't think you're kidding. It's those shorter, more punchy words. Whereas you know, the Latinized words are the ones that we tend to use that that ha- are longer. They're and, the hangups. Well, they have the they have the um, uh, the more technical words that we use in our in our society tend to to come from Latin. I mean, it's just the way it is, like mm-hmm. astronomy, that kind of thing. You know. Yes. So so anyway. <laughs> The um, the reading level of, of your translation, a lot of times you can find out that information either in the introduction or online. It'll say this was a, aimed at a sixth grade reading level or, or whatever. So something to think about. Um, the other thing is this, and, and I want to make clear, one of the main differences between some modern translations today, and there's a lot of controversy about this, and I may get in trouble for this as well. But the 2011 NIV, one of the changes they made, so one of the things they did that I liked, they went back from sinful nature into flesh. The other thing is they began to use more inclusive language. Uh, and, and what I mean is, for example, in Paul's letters when he says – when he addresses them as brothers in Greek, uh, the NIV will translate that brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. Now – there's some controversy about that. There's some people think, well, that's that's going further away from the original. But I'll tell you, I lived in a Spanish-speaking culture for a while. And what's interesting is it, English is not a gendered language in the same way that um, Spanish is, for example. You might remember you, you'd have to learn. Ah, uh, and O at the end. You'd have to learn the correct form, the correct adjective. Mm-hmm. Right. That's the simple way. There, there, there are four. Well, you don't care about this. but I don't. I don't. I, I don't. <laughs> But same in Greek. You have to. There are three genders in Greek. There's there's uh, um, 
masculine, feminine, and, and, and neuter. And so you have to choose the correct verb. You and have neuter to, is neither masculine or feminine. Right. And, and you got to understand, we're talking about, we're not talking about an actuality of biology here. We're talking about the nature of the language. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just our way of, of talking about that. Now, now, a lot of times it does follow, like, for example, man is going to be in masculine and the word for woman is going to be in feminine, uh, th- this kind of thing. But there are other things that, you know, they don't necessarily make make necessary sense. It's you know, there's no reason for it to be neuter compared to masculine or feminine. It's just a it's just a a, a feature of the language. So don't don't go too far down okay, that I'm, way. I'm not. But but here's the interesting thing is in in a lot of those languages, if there's a group of people that are being talked about, then then if it is if it is all women, the feminine form will be used. Um, and if it is all masculine, then the masculine form is used. But then if there's a mixed group, the masculine form is used as well. Really? Yeah. So uh, I'll give you an example. I'll give you a couple of examples. I, when I would preach down in uh, in the Dominican Republic, for example, sometimes, or Spanish-speaking cultures, you know, when you refer to the church sometimes here in the United States, you'll say brothers and sisters, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the the, the Technical, the the word for word, the formal equivalence translation of that would be hermanos, er, hermanos y hermanas, right, brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. But that's not idiomatic in in that culture. What they would tend to say instead is brothers or hermanos, right? Okay, because it's a mixed group of both men and women, but they could refer to both brothers and sisters that's as hermanos. hermanos. Okay. See, in English, if I just said brothers. You know that would be singling out the men. A biological reality, and I think it's because we we're not a we don't have a gendered language, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so, so the interesting thing about that then is that living in that culture and, and understanding the way that Spanish worked make me made me think differently about Greek, which is a gendered language as well. And so, one of the examples is again when where Paul refers to brothers in his letters. Um, what the NIV will do is do brothers and sisters. Because okay. because in English it's a recognition that this church would have included both both men and women. There are a couple of places where that makes a, a pretty um, important difference. First um, uh, Timothy, for example, I'm just thinking about where it says First uh, Timothy chapter two, where it talks about uh, that uh, it, it is God's desire that all. Uh, and, and literally, the word there is "men should be saved," <laughs> right? Yes. But probably a better translation there would be "people." Mm-hmm. You know, but uh, they use the hermanos or like the equivalent, the equivalent, right? Yeah, right, like right. And, yeah. and so, so that's what the NIV is attempting to do. It's attempting to use more inclusive language that 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 is more reflective of what reflects the reality that a lot of times this is a reference to to both men and women. And in English, you know, it's making that clear. So, so I, you know, again, there's debate over that. There's some people that really are are, are been out of shape about it. But I don't. I, I think it's it is getting across the right right kind of an idea. And and of course, we would say, well, in English, you know, men can include, you know, like mankind. We sometimes will use can include both both the men and women. But it's an attempt to try to to show the reality that that Paul was saying. Again, there's it, it's not formal equivalence. Functional equivalence. Functionally, he was talking both to men and women. So there's a couple places though that the NIV I think has has you know made that difficult. One we've already talked about. When I talked about God in a, in a former episode, we talked about Genesis chapter one. God is the creator of all things. When he created human beings, it says he created him 
um, in his image, and then male and female, he created them. Yes. You know, and and, and there the NIV has used them, the plural, in both places. Mm-hmm. Uh, he created them in his own image. And and I, I think there we have to be careful because there may be something that's being lost there. Again, it's simply all you'd have to do in order to notice that, again, is if I took the N, uh, ESV and the NIV side by side, and I noticed that difference, and I'd have to say, oh, okay, is this a singular or a plural? There's a, yes, there's there's something very different happening. There's a there. different, and so I need to understand the nature of that. So that's that's all I'm suggesting. If you don't have access, direct access to Greek and Hebrew, then I would suggest using multiple translations side by side, especially when you're doing a careful study, not necessarily just when you're reading. Mm-hmm. Now, when you're reading, I would encourage you to, to read from different translations, you know, read through the Holy NIV, for example, and read through the Holy ESV and those those kind of things if you're doing like kind of a Bible reading plan or something like that. But if you're studying something carefully, use multiple translations because you got them available. Right. And, and, then, and then you can use the Blue Letter Bible to kind of see like what's absolutely. really happening behind the when, scenes here. When you notice something that you think, okay, there's something, something Especially going when on. you go, yeah, especially in some of that language of them, yeah. it's a plural and a singular, you kind of go, what's happening behind the scenes? Right. Any, any questions or comments on that? No, okay. it's a lot, you know, um, you know, we should probably put a list together of like what we would label, what you would label as like functional translations. I mean, yeah. they kind of cross. Yeah, it, it's true. And and like I said, it, it's really kind of a spectrum. It's not like you could make two columns, I think. It would tend to be mm-hmm. more like, okay, if if this is functional equivalence, this is formal equivalence, it would be somewhere on the on the middle here. Okay, can you we know? make like kind of a graph? Like, we could do that. I'm we could probably kidding. do I'm that. I'm just messing so. with you. <laughs> no, I think I think it's good to understand, the, to see right. some of those differences and and to point them out, because I think it's it's one thing for us to talk about it, and then it's another thing for you yeah. to point out, like, this is how this plays differently. Right. And like there are, and again, as you've said, like there's good things about certain translations, yeah. and there's some things that are kind of like, eh. or, or, you know, for you, that's like, that's not a choice I would make, or I right. think there's something lost right. in that translation. And I think, you know, oftentimes it can get myopic where people, it's almost like, a translation war, like no, this is the right one. Right. This is the right one. No, that that one's too that and, one's too inclusive of the language. And that's why I have a hard time when somebody says, "What's the best translation?" It's like I have a hard I have a hard time with that. Let me talk about one more thing that I think is important in this in this context. We mentioned this again back in episode three, I think, when we were talking about the Bible. I mentioned Bart Ehrman talks mm. about some of these places where there are maybe some verses that are different in some places than other. I'm going to give you some examples of that. And and really that comes down, I think we talked about Mark 16, the ending of Mark 16, then, oh, the yes. long ending versus the short ending of Mark 16. So when you look at modern translations, almost all modern translations, with one exception, uh, are going to be based upon a Greek text that we call the eclectic text. Okay, And anytime you talk about eclectic text, what it's saying is that this is coming from a variety of sources. In other words, there's no one place I can point to this text, and it is exactly the Mm-hmm. that. But using the science of textual criticism, I'm going to try to explain a little bit more of that. We talked about that some again back mm-hmm. in episode three. But using the science of, uh, of uh, textual criticism and the the huge number of Greek translation, Greek, Greek texts that we have available to us today, the attempt has been made to, to get as much as we can the original, what the original uh, text would have been, text would have said, the original manuscripts would have said, we don't have any of the what we call the autographa, the 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 original, you know, mm-hmm. the autographa would or the autographs is when, you know, when Paul finished the book of Romans and signed his name, you know, that was the original. 
Uh, we don't have any of those available, but what we have are copies and usually copies of copies kind of thing. But we can kind of go back. And I mentioned sometimes those those uh, scribal differences will will creep in. And there's a number of different reasons for this. Again, I talked about this a little back in episode three, if you want to go back and listen to that. But almost all translations today, English translations, are based upon um, the eclectic text with one exception, and that is the New King James Version. So both the King James Version which was originally published in 1611, and the New King James Version are based upon a Greek text that is called the Textus Receptus or the, the majority text. You'll see both of those, those words used, majority text or Textus Receptus. Uh, on the Blue Letter Bible um, um, that we released, you, you actually can have access to both of those, the Textus Receptus and, and the, uh, the eclectic text. And you can kind of compare the differences in Greek if you're able to if you're able to to do that, but the majority text or, or Texas Receptus I mentioned back in uh, episode three again it, it was put together in the 15th century, so not too long before the translation of the King James version. It was put together by a a, a scholar by the name of Desiderius Erasmus, and uh, what he did uh, up to this point, except for the very early church in the, in the West at least. Latin, the Latin translation had become kind of the 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 main text uh, of the of the the church. Uh, what we call the Latin, you mentioned the Latin Vulgate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, there's even different there's there's various versions of it. But but this this Latin translation of the of the Bible, both mm-hmm. Hebrew and Greek, is what had kind of become the common one used because Latin. After the Roman Empire, had Latin had become kind of the legal language and the the, the right. language that was used universally, and so for the for the Western Church, at least not the Greek Church, but the Western Church, that became the the predominant uh, version. But Desiderius Erasmus, who he was he was a part of what we would call the Roman Catholic Church during that period of time. If that you know, it's even before the Reformation. So how do you even talk about that? Right. But he was he he was a scholar. And interested in the Greek text. And so he had, I think, nine texts available to him, Greek texts that he found that had various ages mm-hmm. that that had come from different places. And he noticed that there are variations in them. And so we call it the majority text because he would include, if there was a difference, he would include the reading that was in the majority of those texts. So if you had nine texts, and let's say there was five that had this reading and four had this one, he would he take would that. Them with five, or even let's let's complicate it a little bit. Let's say let's say you had um, you had four different readings, and there's you know this one has one. There's one text that has this reading, and there's three that have this reading, and there's three that have this reading, and then and then one that has this reading. Then he goes you know with the majority, and so so or let's say four with that one. So mm-hmm. he he would take whatever reading was the was using the majority majority of the text now, and he and he only had nine right? nine available to him, and right. and here's the problem: we understand now when you think about textual criticism, you think about the fact that these have been copied, and so if there is an error that a scribe made, and again, this we're not talking about the originals, right? right? We're talking about where a scribe a has either included a word that was not in the original or left out an omission. We talked about omissions before. Uh, I'm going to talk about how an inclusion can happen here in just a minute, but omissions, you know, sometimes your eye, you guys have done this when you're copying, mm-hmm. you, you copy something and then you skip a word because your eye travels over here and it, it skips that word. And so, if the, if a copy is made off of those copies, so let's let's imagine in his nine that he had five that belonged to the same manuscript family, they're all going to have that same. It's not going to be the original reading, but it's the majority reading, right? 
Do you, do you see the, what I'm right, saying? Yeah. So that's where okay. error can creep in. Right. So an, so that's an omission. And in addition, sometimes you would, there are a couple of different ways that this would happen. One is sometimes you'd get, you guys, we all do this, we'll write something in the, in the margin of something like this reminds me of this or mm-hmm. a lot of times when it would happen, what we see with some scribes doing is when there's a similar, we've talked about the similarities between Matthew and Mark, for example, mm-hmm. if Jesus says something in Matthew and then he said something very similar in Mark, but maybe in Matthew, he has an additional phrase. Somebody might've put that in the, in the margin of the gospel of Mark. And then when another scribe comes and copies it, they may have included that in the text. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, so yeah. suddenly, this marginal—we call it a marginal note—becomes becomes a part, part of, the of the text, and so that's why you you see that happening sometimes. Where uh, th- that's another kind of thing that can that can happen. Sometimes there may be an an intentional, and we have to make this decision. There's there's an intentional uh, taking something out or adding something. And I'm going to give you a couple of examples of that because this is something that when people are using different translations. It sometimes will bother them. Now, again, when when I was growing up, the King James was kind of the 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 height of what most people used, and then the NIV was just coming on. This is when it became a real difference. It's because people would read this, and it's like all of a sudden, oh well, my, that you're missing a verse is what would be said, or oh, like God. in the Long Indian Mark. I'm going to use two examples. We mentioned this one back in chapter in uh, episode three, but uh, John chapter eight. Technically, it's John chapter 7, verse 53 through 8, 11. All right, um, I'm getting it. John chapter 8, well, at 7, 7, 53 through 8, 11. And I think you mentioned this in, in your translation. This one is set apart. Now, this is a story that everybody loves. This is the story of the woman taken in adultery. Oh, yes. Um, you want a fancy technical term? Technical term is the pericope adultery. So, well, um, <laughs> yep, just keep going with that one, Tiger. I'm... <laughs> the story of the adulterous woman. So in most modern translations today this is not in the text itself so so tell me what are you using there the niv is that what you is that what no, you have this there? is my uh, csv, CSV. What, what what has the csv done with this here what what do you so have? there's a line at the top and the bottom it says the earliest manuscripts do not include okay so the earliest manuscripts do not have this so so here's what but here when i was growing up here's what people say is well it's you know it's left out of your bible right it's, they've decided to take it out, and you'll you'll still even today you can go online and find YouTube videos or whatever. People, uh, yes, you, you know there, sure. this is some kind of conspiracy theory. People are taking this out, but I want you to hear carefully what it says. These were not in the oldest manuscripts we have available. We have now older manuscripts available to us than what Desiderius Erasmus had. Uh, mm. Some of the big ones. There's these four um, big manuscripts of the entire. Bible, really. Um, uh, Alexandrinus is one of them. It's called Codex. There's these four codices or codexes, Uh, but these four codices, one of them is called um, uh, Codex Alexandrinus, and it is the Greek Old Testament and and the Greek New Testament, and it does not have this. Very early Greek Bible that does not include this. Uh, There's an even earlier one, we believe, called Codex Sinaiticus, and they have these funny names because of where they were found. Alexandrinus was in the city of Alexandria, Egypt, for years. Uh, Sinaiticus was found. (laughs) This is a great story. I'll tell the story one of these days. Not today. Today's not that day. But it was found in the Sinai Peninsula, uh, near where we believe the, the traditional site of of Mount Sinai. So it's between the Gulf of Aqaba and the Gulf of uh, Suez in, in, in the Red Sea. Uh, if you're familiar with that reason, there's this 
triangle between them that's called the the Sinai Peninsula. And uh, there's an old, old, old monastery there that's called uh, St. Catherine's Monastery. It's been there a long time because, again, the early church thought this was the the traditional site of Mount Sinai, so they built a monastery there. And um, I guess I am telling most of the story, but the (laughs) – there was a guy that got this idea. His name was Constantine von Tischendorf. Uh, but he <laughs> say that name again. Constantine von Tischendorf. Um, <laughs> you just think I'm making this stuff up, right? <laughs> but he, he's he he's a real life Indiana Jones. But he he got the idea. If we want to find really early copies of the Bible, which is what he was interested in, German Bible scholar, he said we should go to places that are very arid. Because they're not they're molding not be and, and mildewing and deteriorating dry, arid regions, and where there have been there's been a continuous presence of Christians for a long time, and so this is one of the places he went intentionally to look, and he found this old manuscript called Sinaiticus, which we now believe is one of the oldest uh, complete manuscripts of the whole Bible. In fact, I've seen both of these. Wait, wait, wait. Where did he find it? He found it in St. Catherine's Monastery. I mean, did they just like shove it in a corner? I'll tell you the story sometime. Okay. So, <laughs> It's a someone cool, roll it up and like, oh, I forgot. It's a about cool this. story, and and there's some people who who there's of course there's debate about everything these days, right? But there's some people who think that von Tischendorf kind of made up the story too. But but anyway, it's a very very old manuscript that he found in this monastery. Uh, I'll tell you the whole story later on, but okay. uh, we'll, we'll we'll share it sometime. It, it's a cool story, it really is. But anyway, um, we, this is probably long enough already. So, um, <laughs> so von Tischendorf found this this uh, Sinaiticus, and Sinaiticus does not contain the story of the adulterous woman as well. So when it says the oldest manuscripts that we have, you know, earliest manuscripts, earliest manuscripts. Now, the other funny thing about this story is that it was placed in other places as well. Uh, There's one manuscript, later manuscript we have that places in the gospel of Luke, Mm, for example. Interesting. Okay. Uh, There are other places it's sometimes placed in, in the gospel of John as well. And, and I think I've mentioned this before. There are, there are words in this that, that it, it does not match up well with the rest of the Gospel of John. Uh, in, in fact, uh, the other the other kind of funny thing is if read verse fifty three seven fifty three for me. So Jesus is talking at the end of verse seven, uh-huh. and then and then it says, "Then each one went to his house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives." Okay, and then there's the story of the adulterous woman, and then down in verse twelve, when Jesus again spoke to the people, you could take this out. And there, there'd be absolutely no interruption in the story. So they all go home, but then he goes to the Mount of Olives and you have the story. You, you yeah, see what I'm yeah, saying? Yes. So it seems to interrupt the flow. Uh, and, and so most people, there are some people who still insist that this is this belongs here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but most people who study the Gospel of John will say that this... Now, the interesting thing, this could be a, an authentic story, but when we talk about narrative, it probably does not belong here in the narrative of the Gospel of John. People love this story. It's a great story, right? But, but you know, again, we're trying to— Textual criticism. We're trying to be students and, and understand this. So here's—listen uh, carefully to this. I would say this is not an issue that modern translations have decided to take this out. I think that at some point it was included, included in here for some reason, mm-hmm. right? And so that's— that's kind of the decision. That's kind of the thoughts we have to come through. I'm going to show you one more example. It's probably a little bit clearer. This is in the book of First John, and this uh, this little section has a n- name too. It's called the Johannine comma. Sometimes <laughs> you think I'm making this stuff up. I know. I know you do. This is chapter five and verse eight of First John. 
And uh, let me go ahead and read verse seven. And I want you to look look at the footnotes. I'm going to start in verse uh, verse uh, seven. Actually, let me go ahead and just to give you some of the context, let me read verse six. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the spirit who testifies because the spirit is the truth. For there are three, verse seven, that testify. And I'm going to read what is in the text, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. Okay. Now you've been looking at the footnote since then. And what does your footnote there in verse seven say? Uh, by speaking of three witnesses, John may have been thinking of Deuteronomy nineteen fifteen. Uh, the Spirit testifies along with the water and the blood. So the Spirit uh, testifies with water, Jesus' baptism, and the blood, Jesus' atoning. Well, that's that's actually the the study notes. But I'm saying, is oh, there not a note? Oh, 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 there's not a yeah, textual yeah. note here. Sorry, it may be in verse eight. Yeah, yeah here we go. Verse eight. A uh, few late. A few late Greek manuscripts and some late Vulgate manuscripts add testify in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Uh, and these, and there, there are, are three who bear witness on earth. And so then it goes on to the rest of the verse. Mm-hmm. So you see it's a very Trinitarian formula. Mm-hmm. There are these three that testify in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Spirit, and these three are one. It's right. almost like a – now, here's the interesting thing. That was a part of the Vulgate manuscript. The Latin. Mm-hmm. And so when Desiderius Erasmus started to translate the Greek, the first two editions he put out of his Greek New Testament did not include this because in his text, not a, this wasn't just the majority. All of them uh, unanimously did not include that part of the verse or you know, did not have that, what the Vulgate had in this place. Well, here's where the interesting pressure comes on because he becomes then um, accused of heresy. He okay. says you're you're trying to basically go back to to the idea of a unitarian god instead of a trinitarian god which was heresy within the church and so when he did his third edition they included this and it says there's only one late greek manuscript the greek manuscript that that has this is like from the 14th century so really so, late so contemporary to, to Desiderius Erasmus right and and so so what happened is basically you know, they produced this Greek manuscript that he then included this in in his third edition, but after he had been called a heretic for leaving it out. And, and again, same kind of thing that happens today. There are pressure on people when they say, "Oh, you've you know, you're not reading from the King James. You're reading from this from this other this yes. other modern translation." But what I'm what I'm saying to you is the manuscript tradition that we have and the ability we have to read these manuscripts gives us a really high confidence in the modern translations that we have. And in these places where it says that this probably was not in the original, there's a high degree of confidence which we can say that that's, that's probably true. Interesting. Comments or questions on that or anything else you want to No, wanna I mean, say? I think it's, it's really interesting. You know, I, I think again, it's, for most of us, and myself included, mm-hmm. not knowing some of the background of the manuscripts yeah. and what, what's going on there, I think it's a really helpful way to think about what we're reading and right. um, how some of these verses got put together. Because I think that is a, sometimes a sticking point for people right. is like, well, I read this over here, and this is different over here. Right. Which one is which one is right? And well, maybe neither. Right. <laughs> well, but I mean, it's true. It's, I mean, right. that's the thing. When I'm not saying they're they're lying, but saying like. That, that there is again once we're trying to make that translation to English, yes. it's 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 a hard it's not a one to one translation. What I would say is when we use one of the major modern English translations based upon the eclectic text, 
I, I think we can have a high degree of certainty in in that both this this um, this is what's in the original, and it it's close to what the meaning is. Again, I, I said we have to be students of the word, so sometimes it means not just saying, well, the translation committee got it right this time. Sinful nature is the example, you know, in, mm-hmm. in, in the old NIV. Um, we need to understand what's going on there and, th- and kind of think, well, does this word flesh always have that connotation? And the answer is no. There's clearly places where flesh is used. It means flesh, you know, mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, a, a, in contrast to spirit, mm-hmm. uh, we might say. And and so there, there are places where where we have to, you know, just do a little bit more digging and, and get in. And then, again, that's part of why we're doing this podcast is kind of, you know, show So we people. can do our own personal digging. We're encouraging, I think, that. We're encouraging yeah. people to kind of, you know, take take the tools that are available to us, embarrassment of riches. Many of them we don't even have to buy, you know, Blu-ray Bibles online, Bible gateways online. There's there's lots of resources available to us if we just use them and and, and learn a little bit of how to use them, dig in a little bit. Don't just take don't even take you know our word for it. Right. Look look it up and and read a bit about it. Textual criticism is a hard thing to describe. I mean, I'd love some time to and, and maybe we will do a video or something on that because it's it's a pretty in-depth kind of endeavor. There's uh, a lot happening there. There's a lot happening because you have to kind of you have to come to the conclusion again, is this something that has been omitted? And you have to be able to explain why this would have been omitted, or is mm-hmm. this something that has been added? And, and you have to kind of make that make that determination. Um, and, and again, you look at the history, you look at the manuscript tradition, you look at other other kinds of things. There are early, I haven't even mentioned this, there are early translations, uh, like into Coptic and Armenian and, and these other languages where the Bible was translated early. And do those translations, who may have been based on earlier texts than we have available, um, were they, you know, did they um, uh, have those verses in them or not? You know, all those are ways that we can kind of, um, we can kind of look at that. There are certain textual traditions that we can say tended to include everything. You know, if there was a marginal note, if there was a little little commentary or whatever, it's tended to be included in. Um, and and it's just, it's a matter of understanding all of that. But most of your modern translations are really good. Uh, again, understand that they may have a a, a certain bias, or, and certainly they have a certain um, uh, translation uh, theory. Mm-hmm. Whether they're trying to get more functional or more formal, and just understanding right. that, I think, can help us. Absolutely, I yeah. think that's I think that's a big thing. I mean, for everyone is to understand that there are two natures of how yeah. translations are done, sure. and that's functional and formal, um, and just the the value of understanding that and yeah. just understanding why one might feel more difficult in its reading. And just because right. it's more difficult in the reading doesn't necessarily it's pointing you to the correct place. Because right. I think that's, and sometimes some people take that right. approach as like, this one's highly, there's much more technical and harder <laughs> to understand, so it must be more correct. More but, correct, And that's not know. necessarily true in, in understanding those two. But I, I, I yeah. like what you said is, you know, the Blue Letter Bible, you know, I, this is one thing I, I'm slowly trying to learn Greek, right. you know, 40 years old. And it, it gives, and you're like, well, why do you want to learn Greek? And I'm like, because otherwise I'm just taking everybody else's word right. for it, you know, right. and, and understanding exactly right. that. And, but again, it's not to say that um, what you've been told is wrong, but it's just right. kind of understanding that those Absolutely. those layers that, that go yeah. into that. And this kind of goes back to, and I think that's one of the, you know, Study is fruitful, but I think it's also the challenge for us. Yes. It's just as we talked about justification a couple episodes ago. Yeah. It's just like it's not only 
we have to understand the culture and how they use the words, but right. what words did they actually use? And sometimes we lose some of those actual words because yeah. it's a Greek to English or Hebrew to English. Like, yeah. there's these multiple layers of the onion you gotta you gotta pull and, back. And I'll go ahead and say English is kind of a funny language too because we we <laughs> yes. well we've borrowed from so many places. And and I tell you, you talk to to someone who is a native speaker of another place who maybe has come here and and learned English or or come to the United Kingdom to learn English. And they'll say, oh, it's so difficult because of the way that, that – Did you say United Kingdom? Yeah. I come to the United Kingdom to well, learn. Well, I'm just saying there are other pl- – We're know in if, the U.S. I don't know if you know this. There are other places they speak English. <laughs> oh, I know. But <laughs> to come to the United Kingdom. We're not in the United Kingdom. We're in the U.S. Anyway, continue with your story. No, I'm just saying that they – you know, English is a hard language to learn. Mm-hmm. There, there are – there's a big vocabulary, and a lot of it comes from different – different ways I and we do some things that are really stupid <laughs> well i just heard this it's become this was a newscaster the other day it's it's become a a, a common language in fact I was, I was just talking to you about a translator today and he's the one who asked me about this he said what does this mean a whole nother <laughs> he's like what's this word nother <laughs> Like, oh come on! How uh, do you don't, not, don't uh, ask. Don't ask. Yeah, but, but regional you know, dialect. <laughs> we've t- well, I mean, like, like I said, I heard that on a newscast yesterday, a, na- a national newscast, a whole nother. You know, we've taken this word another that, and, and split it up. You know, and, and so you know, you think about that. Here's a guy who was who was originally you know was was a Haitian learned Creole, which in, in English has a much larger vocabulary than Creole does, and uh, you know he's he's trying to deal with this stuff, you know, and, and, and I think any person who comes in and tries to understand English, there's, there's funny things that we do. The rules are irregular. Um, you know, the, the way we do contractions is, is mm-hmm. interesting. That makes it much, much harder. I think for someone who's just learning English, uh, because we say I'm not, but we say you aren't right. And, and, mm-hmm. and these kind of things and, and, uh, you know, where we decide to tr- contract. So, I'm, we take the verb and the, and the subject, mm-hmm. I'm not, but in you, we take, you aren't, we take the verb and the not and contract them, right? right. <laughs> that, that is an interesting thing. I mean, I could, I could go all day on this. You don't yeah. want me to. <laughs> I promise you, I don't want you to. And neither does our audience. Right. So we're Very wrapping good. it up here. Yeah. There's d- functional, formal yeah. translations, understand that. When you see, you know, when you're reading, look at some different versions, see them side by side, because it can kind of help illuminate, like, hey, there's something happening with the original source language here. If you have an internet connection, you don't have to buy another one. They're they're available online. You got Blue Letter Bible. Check it out. You can get the Blue Letter Bible video that will kind of show you how to use that. I sent it for email newsletter. Um, And I think that's about it. We've gone pretty long today. I know. I'm sorry. And it's now, we're working on a sign-off. Yeah. So I I, I said every every podcast, you know, we could always say, bye. See you. Yeah, we so say, oh, thanks, Brian. We're workshopping. I say it like that. I appreciate you saying that's how it sounds. <laughs> we're workshopping a, a sign-off. Yeah, so maybe if you have some wonderful sign-offs for us that might be, you know, yeah. really witty or bantery. So what are we going to do now? We're just going to, like, cut it? We just stopped talking right now. What if we just <laughs> paused and no one moved for a second? Anyway, we're going to wrap this one up. Yeah. Brian, thank you so much. Not a problem. Yeah, we're signing off. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Ryan and Brian's Bible Bistro. Next week, Brian and I are talking all about the books of the Apocrypha. Now, if you aren't familiar, these are books or scrolls that were written between the Old and New Testament period that were known and read by the nation of Israel. We talk about some of the stories in there and how some of those stories might relate to the New Testament. You don't want to miss it. 
You can find show notes, links, and more at thebiblebistro.com, as well as sign up for our email newsletter to stay in touch, but also to get our instructional video on how to use the free online resource, The Blue Letter Bible. You can find us and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at The Bible Bistro. And as always, you can subscribe to us on either Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. Just search for Ryan and Brian's Bible Bistro. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next Tuesday.